The title of our message tonight is Out with the Old, In with the New. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. You follow along as I read. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, that is Christ, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. You are probably familiar with the oft-repeated slogan or phrase, old habits die hard. It's probably true with every one of us that habits formed over many, many years of our life are very, very hard to break. We come into patterns of thinking and behavior that for us seem, because they have been around for such a long period of time, to be that which is normal, that which is natural. It could be from anything to sleeping in the same way, to rising at the same time, to working at the same job, to having the same kinds of patterns throughout the day, to going to bed at virtually the same time and doing the same thing all over again. Old habits die hard. That is really what is at stake in this portion of God's Word. You could probably even retitle it, Old Habits Die Hard. This is really an important portion of God's Word for us to know because it really cuts across the habits of our life. All of us, to some degree, have a pattern in our thinking and in our behavior for which if someone began to challenge us to change in the right way, in the honorable way, it would be somewhat hard for us, even if we were to acknowledge the truth of what they were saying. And that's because habits are hard to break. And this is exactly what is going on in this portion of Mark. Jesus is continuing his ministry He's continuing to teach. He's continuing to come across all of the people along his path and work with them and confront them with sin and encourage those who are believers with their life and with their purpose on earth. And there is a, another group of people for which Jesus speaks here in Mark chapter 2. We know that he has dealt already with a number of other people, but here he seems to center in on the disciples of John the Baptist. 
that's really the first phrase in verse 18, John's disciples, and that's who it is, John the Baptist. He is at this particular point imprisoned, and his disciples are now, uh, John's disciples are now in a sense on their own. And they are involved in some spiritual work, some religious tradition, i.e. fasting, and when they find out that that is apparently not the rule of the day, they begin to question why Jesus and his disciples are not involved in what they are involved in, and that really becomes the backdrop for our text this evening. Now this section of Mark's Gospel, and I want to give you just a brief reminder of what is going on here. This is a section in Mark's Gospel where there are a number of challenges to his life and his ministry. You remember at the beginning of chapter 2, the first 12 verses, speak of a challenge against his deity. He is teaching in the home of Peter, his own base of operations, and as he begins to teach, you remember that there was a man who was a paralytic who was in such a desperate need of healing by Christ and had such an incredible faith in Christ that he had four friends who lowered him down through a hole in the wall or in the roof and right in front of Christ. Christ then said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Just really rankling the attitudes and the heart of the religious leaders who were either inside or directly outside. Because obviously they knew that only God alone could forgive sins. And when Jesus uttered those words, and then when he healed the man, he attested forever that he is indeed God himself. And that was the beginning of the earnest endeavor of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, to criticize and to foil, if they were able to do so, the plans of Christ in his ministry. And as you know, even up to the point of coming to a place of killing him. And that's really the backdrop for the whole section here in Mark chapter 2. You even remember in verses 15 to 17 or 13 to 17 where there is another opportunity for the scribes and Pharisees to criticize the Lord Jesus Christ. They criticized him because they said, why is it that you're eating with tax collectors like this Matthew fellow and others who are obviously not working toward the righteousness with which we are working toward. And Jesus has a very answer for them. You remember also that the scribes and Pharisees were the most touted religious leaders of the day. They were the ones who were supposed to have it all. They were the ones who were supposed to be the religious elite. And it's interesting to me that when Jesus has earnest criticism against him, violent criticism, that it comes from the very religious leaders who are to be the ones who are to affirm his ministry, the ones who are supposed to herald him, the ones who are supposed to attest to his deity. Well, it's not so. And as we come to Mark 2, verses 18 to 22, we find another set of criticisms. We could outline the text very easily. Verse 18 is the question, the question. Verses 19 to 20, the explanation, the explanation. And then verses 21 to 22, the illustration. 
the illustrations. The question, verse 18, the explanation, verses 19 to 20, and the illustration, verses 21 to 22. Let's dig in to this portion of God's Word. Verse 18, the question, the question. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now Mark begins here by giving us a note for any of his non-Jewish readers, and you know that Mark was primarily or predominantly written to non-Jews, the Romans. And this would have been a note for them to understand, especially if they did not understand common Jewish culture. He writes a note for these non-Jewish readers about fasting. And this is an important thing to understand in order to understand the very context of this passage. Now, first of all, Mark says in the imperfect tense that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, showing us very clearly that at the very time of their question to Jesus, they were probably in observance of that fast on the very first day. And this was a regular part of many Jews and their religious life, this idea of fasting, and fasting at a regular time. If you were to look at your Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus 23, and Numbers 29, it states that there was really only one official fast that the Jews were to commemorate every year, and it was on the Day of Atonement. We know today that Atonement Day called Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the day in which everyone as a Jew is supposed to go before the Lord in repentance with dust and ashes, fasting to seek his forgiveness, to have their sins atoned for. If you were to read sometimes Acts chapter 27, when you came upon verse 9, it would make an allusion to this fast on the Day of Atonement, which would occur usually either in September or October of each year. And even up to this very day, there is an actual day called Yom Kippur where this fast, this request for forgiveness is given by the Jews to their God. But from the initial celebration of the Day of Atonement, all the way back early in the Old Testament, through the years, the Jews began to add other days of fasting, not just the one day, but several. And it's very interesting that as the years roll on, these fasts begin to multiply, and it begins to become that which was structured by the Jews, that if you were really spiritual, that if you were really godly, you would begin to fast at these other times as well, so that God could see your earnestness and your desire for him. For instance, in Judges chapter 20, verse 26, 1 Samuel 14, 24, 2 Samuel 1, 12, and 2 Samuel 3, 35, we read about other fasts that occurred from sunrise to sunset. We even read in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, of a three-week fast, where some of the Jews of that day fasted for three weeks in a row. In Exodus 34, in Deuteronomy 9, and 1 Kings 19, it even speaks of a 40-day fast, where there would be a fasting for 40 straight days. We even know that Jesus himself fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, right? There's even a, in Zechariah chapter 7, a fifth and seven month fast day where they would fast for the entire month for two months 
And then there was a fast in the fourth and fifth and seventh and even tenth months. I mean, they began to fast very, very regularly and very, very often. And when you come to the New Testament, in Luke 18.12, you have a Pharisee lauding praises upon himself, and he says, in order to tout his own religious fervor, that he says, I fast twice a week. I mean, it went from a one-day fast at the Day of Atonement to regular, systematic fast, even to now a Pharisee saying, I even fast every single week and twice a week at that. There's even a Jewish law book, a commentary on the Jews' interpretation of the law called the Didache. Didache is simply a word for teaching. And they were very, very specific interpreters of God's law, or so they thought, and so they wrote a book called the Didache, and it shows that most pious Jews, if you were really serious about your Lord, you would fast on Mondays and Thursdays of every week to enhance your relationship to God. And this is probably what that Pharisee had in mind. He was fasting every Monday and every Thursday. So, here are some Pharisees who see this rabbi, Jesus, which would have been a very common name of the time. They know he's different than the other rabbis because they've seen all of his miracles. They've seen all of his healings from Peter's house. They know that Peter's mother-in-law had been healed. They know that this paralytic had been healed instantly, raised down the, the roof by his friend. Someone told me a couple of weeks ago after I preached that message, uh, I think it was four male nurses, and they were just trying to get rid of him. I said, well, maybe, maybe. Then again, maybe not. And they see all of these things that this Jesus, this rabbi, is doing and teaching. And as he teaches, he has disciples after him, you know, Simon and Andrew and James and John. And as they come, and as they observe this rabbi teaching, there are others who are beginning to follow, namely the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees. And notice that it is not simply the disciples of the Pharisees, specifically now grouped together in a very unique way, probably very unique and so unique that it does not really occur outside of the gospel. That is, the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist coming together to ask the question of Christ. It says, and John's disciples in the bottom part of verse 18. Now, you know the context here. Jesus had just really, in a sense, given this man, Matthew, this tax collector, a call, a call to discipleship. And you remember just what happened just after he called Matthew to be with himself? Matthew then took Christ to his house, a very big house, and he brought in some of his friends, and they were beginning to have a feast, right? They were beginning to eat. That's what it tells us in verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And as it was, in this case, in the part of Christ's life where these detractors are very ready to pounce upon him, there are these Pharisees and scribes who are following him all over the place, looking for ways to question him and criticize him. It says, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, verse 16, 
They said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now there's probably a, a very valid question in the sense that they're wondering, he's not doing it the way our own rabbis are doing it. Remember we covered that last time. He's not doing it the way we would do it. We are untouched by sin. We are untouched by these filthy tax collectors and these sinners who are not following God's law. But there may be another question there. And I think that comes to us in verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now remember the context. They've just seen Christ fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors who've all come to Christ and now they're having a party and they're eating, they're having a wonderful feast and these religious leaders and even John's, John's disciples come and say, now wait a minute, I thought it was right, I thought it was best, I thought if we were really going to endear ourselves to God, we should be fasting today. If we're really honest and sincere and careful about our observance of God and his law, why is Jesus feasting with these people and why is he eating at all? This is really supposed to be for us an opportunity to fast. It could have even been on that Monday or Thursday, whichever day it might be. And this would have been a day that the Jews would say, we're not supposed to eat today. If we're not supposed to eat, then why is this rabbi eating, and why are his disciples eating with him as well? Now, apparently, this would have been a somewhat sincere question. You know that John's disciples are not like the disciples of the Pharisees. They are earnest, and they are rightfully earnest. They've been discipled by John the Baptist himself. He hasn't led them astray. He hasn't led them away from the Messiah. He has led them to him, right? Do you remember that scene in the prison where the disciples of John the Baptist go to him and they ask him this question? Is this Jesus, this one who is teaching and healing, is he the one? And then John the Baptist turns around and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to this Christ, go back to this Jesus, this rabbi, and I want you to ask him this question. Are you the one? Are you the expected one? Or should we look to someone else? Remember that? And so they did. And when they went back and asked Jesus that very question, what did he say? He said, go back and tell John this. The blind received their sight, the lame walked, and the prisoners, those who are captive in their sins, have the gospel preached to them. You'll know it. And you've often, and I'm sure I've done that in the past, asked myself the question, did John the Baptist, was he vacillating in his faith? Was he questioning whether or not this truly was the Messiah? And the answer is no, not at all. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. Even at the baptism of Jesus, a spirit, the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and even the voice from heaven, from God the Father himself, spoke very clearly and said what? This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And John the Baptist received a direct revelation from God that this man was in fact Jesus Christ. John knew it. He didn't question that. 
the issue was one of transition. The disciples of John needed to look at their ministry with John as being over. And they now needed to look at their ministry as being aligned with the Lord himself. John the Baptist knew he was rolling off the scene. He knew that. He knew he was about to be beheaded. He knew that his ministry was over. He knew that he would likely not ever be let go from prison. And he knew that there needed to be a transition. His disciples, his way of thinking, his life, now looking at these disciples and telling them, you need to now put your life in the hands of this rabbi, this teacher, Jesus Christ. And yet this transition is not fully complete, is it? There could very well be some within this band of disciples of John the Baptist who wouldn't be so sure. I can understand that. You had been giving all of your life to the study of God and his word, and if you had a teacher like John the Baptist, it wouldn't be so easy, would it? It wouldn't be so easy for you or me to say, all right, I was looking at this man for my spiritual sustenance and growth. He was my shepherd. He was my prophet. He was all that I needed to show me the way to God. And now he's gone. Who do I look to? Where do I go? And the disciples of John the Baptist are now, in a sense, stifled, questioning in their minds, where should we go? What should we do? Who should we align ourselves with? And apparently, after John's imprisonment, the disciples of John the Baptist, they kept in their small little band. They didn't disperse. If you were to read in Matthew chapter 11 and Mark 6, Luke 7 and John 1, they all speak of John's disciples as a little band of followers. We don't know how many there were, but we know that there were quite a few. And it may have been that they didn't follow John's aim of preparing themselves to receive the Messiah, just like John the Baptist did. So they're questioning, they're wondering. And in Luke 5.33, the parallel passage in the Gospel account, Luke adds in this account on fasting, that in addition to fasting, John's disciples were making supplications. Not just fasting, but also they were praying fervently. And they might, even been pray- they might have even been praying this, Lord, should we follow this man, Jesus? Is he the one we're to look to? Should we do all that we can to disband our little group and now follow Christ? In fact, in Matthew's account, he says that it was actually the disciples of John the Baptist who asked Jesus this question. In our text, you don't really see it. All it says was, and they came and said to him, and it appears as though it's both John's disciples and the Pharisees, and that's certainly true, but apparently the ones who articulated the question were the disciples of John the Baptist. They wondered. They wondered, what is going on? It doesn't seem like you are doing that which is consistent with all of our forefathers and all that we're doing. We're fasting on Mondays and Thursdays, and we're praying for the Messiah to come. We're looking for the Holy One. John the Baptist has told us to be steadfast and immovable. What do we do? Are you the one that we're to follow? And if so, why aren't you fasting? This is a fast day, not a feast day. And I'm sure that there is in their hearts an anguish. I don't think they're coming and criticizing Christ. I think they're coming with an honest question. And when they come with this very, very honest question, we see the explanation in verses 19 and 20. Look at it. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, 
the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? Well, that is a very provocative question. While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What is he saying? What are you talking about? You ever read your gospel accounts of our Lord and his work and you come across a statement like that and at first glance when you read it, you say to yourself like I do, I have no idea what that means. I don't have any idea what that means. We're talking about fasting here, aren't we? We're talking about fasting and prayers and Jesus' disciples and the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of Pharisees and they ask the question about fasting and all of a sudden Jesus starts talking about a wedding. What is he referring to? Well, it's very simple, really. In the history of the Jewish culture, both Old and New Testament, weddings were something that were very, very common in the time. You know it. You can't scarcely read your Bible and read of accounts of weddings, of ceremonies, of brides and of bridegrooms. It was a very, very festive and fun and wonderful time when there was a wedding ceremony in the land of the Jews. And Jesus, knowing that, and being the master teacher that he is, brings us an illustration of his own that speaks of the very thing that would answer their question, and only in a way that they would clearly and unmistakably understand what he's talking about. I'll show you. When God is said to be the the bridegroom of his covenant people who are the bride, Jesus picks up on that theme and says the same thing in his teaching. And in fact, John the Baptist himself picks up on that theme. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3 and I'll show you. This is fascinating to me. John chapter 3. And this is the the real answer to this question, I believe. The disciples of John the Baptist would have known exactly what Jesus was referring to. And this is the perfect answer for them. In John chapter 3, it says in verse 22, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing John also was baptizing in Aon, or Eon, near Salim, because there was much water there. And I've talked about this passage before and mentioned to you that that, for me, is a wonderful affirmation of dunking in the waters of baptism, not sprinkling. There was much water there. He could sprinkle them all, right? And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, notice this. And remember the context of Mark 2. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, so he's a teacher as well, he's a rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, who's that a reference to? Who? Christ. He who was with you beyond the Jordan. Remember John the Baptist had baptized Jesus? Shortly after this, shortly before this account is given, 
he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now see, we have a potential conflict here, don't we? The disciples of John the Baptist are looking at this Jesus, this other rabbi, and his disciples, and they realize that there's this competition between them. And they're genuinely asking the question, now wait a minute, if you testified of Jesus Christ, and if he now has disciples, and they're baptizing, and he's teaching, and they're with him, and they're doing that over in this area, and if we are your disciples, and you are our rabbi, and we're baptizing, and you're doing this here, then isn't that a problem? And if that's a problem, who, do we, who are we to follow? Because you testified of him. What should we do? What is our response? This is confusing to us. And notice John the Baptist's response, verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Obviously what he's saying is, I have a ministry, yes, but I would not have had that ministry unless it had been given to me from God himself directly from heaven. In other words, he's showing his great humility there, isn't he? Verse 28, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. And he forever makes it utterly clear, if you're going to ask me the question, who to follow, the answer is, not me. Not me. He's showing the preeminence of Christ now. He says, but I have been sent ahead of him. I'm his forerunner. And then he gives a very interesting analogy or an illustration, and now you know why Jesus is about to say what he says. Listen, verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. You ever wondered exactly what he's talking about there? Well, it's very easy. Who is the bride there in verse 29? Who's the bride? Us. Believing Jews, those who would respond to Christ, believing Gentiles, those who would respond to Christ, we're all the bride. Who's the bridegroom? Christ. And then it says the friend of the bridegroom. Who's that? John the Baptist. He's the best man. And he stands and hears Christ and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. I mean, he's just thrilled. He's just greatly encouraged because the wedding day has come. You know how long the Jews had looked for Messiah to come? They had looked for Messiah to come for years and years and years, even if we were to reduce it down to the intertestamental period, after Malachi, the last speaking prophet, and before John, there was a 400-year period where the Jews were fasting and praying and giving supplications to the Lord, and there was no word from heaven. Malachi was that last prophet. And Malachi says, prepare the way for the Lord. That was one of his last prophecies. And that was a prophecy about John the Baptist. And yet God, in his sovereign purposes, waited 400 years to answer. And folks, I don't know about you, but that seems to me to be a very long time. 
400 years waiting and praying and fasting and supplicating before the Lord for the Messiah to come to deliver his people. And John the Baptist comes on the scene and he has such a, such a unique and different ministry that people were saying, is he the one? Boy, it sure seems to be different and unique and he's calling for repentance and the Messiah is going to call for that and he's going to do so out in the wilderness and the Bible says in Hosea that God will come to his people from the wilderness. This must be the man. And his disciples are running after him and they're following him as the rabbi. And now they see this other guy coming on the scene with his disciples and doing baptisms and all of these teachings and they're saying, is, is he the one? I thought we were following you. Are you the one? Is he the one? Who's the one? And he says very clearly, I am not the one. I am a forerunner. And I want you to know that the bridegroom has come. The day is here. The wedding feast is to begin. And I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. And in stark contrast to the world, John the Baptist might even say something like this, I may be the friend of the bridegroom, I may be the best man, but I'm really not a very good one at that. Because notice what he says in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Boy, just a tremendous humility. And he says, what you need to do is you need to understand that I am only one in the bridal party. That Christ himself is the bridegroom. Now go back to Mark 2. Now you know, with that kind of background they were to understand exactly what Jesus is speaking of they ask the question he gives the answer while the bridegroom is with them who's them the disciples while he is with them the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast so long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. These were these male friends of the wedding. And here's what they were responsible to do in that time. They, as the wedding party, and it's somewhat true today, they would be responsible for making sure that everything was ready so that the bride nor the bridegroom had to do anything. They were responsible for all of the logistics. They were responsible for making sure that the entire feast was ready. And they normally did it at the house of the groom. And you know that there was an elaborate thing. They didn't have just a one-day wedding ceremony like we have. Did you know that they had a week's worth of celebration? Now we would say, let me get married and let me get out of here, right? They didn't do that. What they did was they had an entire week of celebration. And the friends of the bridegroom were responsible for making sure that all of the preparations were ready, especially at the groom's house. And they even, on the road leading to the groom's house, wanted to make sure that it was all decorated. Everything was ready. And now the bridegroom has come. And they had the responsibility of providing whatever was necessary for the wedding and for all the arrangement. And there was great joy. There was tremendous exhilaration. Weddings were one of the most wonderful things of that time. And when it happened that way, and when a wedding for a week long of the actual wedding itself, of the ceremony, and all the preparations leading up, did you know that that particular time 
when that occurred, everybody who was involved in the wedding party did not have to fast. They were not called upon to fast during those times. They needed to have all of their strength, all of their right processes, and so they were suspended from these fasts. That was the culture of the day. So the disciples of Jesus are here. They're the friends of the bridegroom, and they're getting everything ready. They're the wedding attendants. And when they stand close to him in the wedding processional, they're in charge of everything and don't have to fast. In other words, this is not time for fasting. It's time for feasting. And they had all kinds of food ready at the wedding. I mean, it was incredible. They would kill the fatted calf, and they would get everything ready, and they would have merriment, celebration, music, and dancing. They might have even had some clapping. Who knows? Disciples of the Lord were not mourning. They were laughing and loving all of the things that were involved. And with that answer, Jesus jerks them away from their tradition, away from the old, and obviously to the new. And it was a wonderful time. William Hendrickson says, The bridegroom's attendants fasting while the feast is in progress? How absurd! The disciples of the Lord mourning while their master, the Lord Jesus Christ, is performing works of mercy and while words of life and beauty are dropping from his lips? How utterly incongruous! In other words, with all the celebration that the bridegroom has arrived. And frankly, even though the wedding ceremony included the bride... In that culture, the biggest issue was the bridegroom. When the bridegroom comes, that means that it is now confirmed that the bride can be married. The bridegroom comes, and when he comes, why should we do anything else except love and laugh and have joy and food and fellowship together? It's not time for fasting. And these guys shouldn't have got hung up in the least about fasting. There are a number of passages in the Old Testament which also speak of this, that when the wedding ceremony is there, everything falls by the wayside because of the joy and celebration. No time for mourning, time for laughter. The groom is standing at the door and the response is, let him in. Let him in, this is the time. And then Jesus turns the corner yet again in verse 20. Look at it. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. And he really brings us back to a centrist position. He's not saying that there is frivolity. He's not saying that there is absolutely no reason for there never to be fasting again. He's simply saying this is a time frame for which there is no fasting, but fasting will come again. And when will it come? And when will it be most necessary? When the bridegroom is taken away from them. And like a thunderbolt, he hits them with the appropriate time to fast again. And what is this a reference to? You know that this is actually a reference to the cross. The little phrase there, taken away, is used other places in the Bible to talk about a violent removal. When the bridegroom is violently plucked 
violently removed from you, then this will be the time to fast. Then there should be fasting in that day. He's saying, don't mourn when the bridegroom is here. That's the time for celebration. But there's going to come a time when the bridegroom is going to leave. And when he leaves, when he's violently removed, that's the time you ought to fast. There's going to come a day when he's going to be violently removed from you. And did you know that that is an exact fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53 on the suffering servant? Verse 8 says this, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Same phrase. There's going to be a time when fasting is appropriate. And when that day comes, fasting will be the right response. You see, Jesus wasn't condemning fasting here. He didn't necessarily command it, but he said it would be appropriate in that day when that day comes. And even that, the morning will be turned to joy. It's not going to be that which is fasting only. It's going to be a serious fast, but it's also going to be a morning. That's what John 16 speaks of. And in case they didn't get the analogy, he uses another one in verses 21 and 22. Notice he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. What he's saying is very simple and what they would have understood very readily. If you have an old garment, you don't take a piece of cloth, then get it, and then it gets wet, it would shrink, and then it would tear away from that old garment. You wouldn't have a, a wineskin, for instance, and it would be old, and it would be in need of repair, and maybe a hole had developed, and you wouldn't take a new wineskin patch, and you wouldn't sew it on there, because when that wine would come in, and when it would be exposed to that small patch, it would begin to shrink. And when it would shrink, it would begin to tear away, and then the wine would leak out. And you know as well as I that if water was not readily available in that time, and it wasn't, it's a desert climate, it's a Mediterranean climate, wine was the choice of drink that they had, very often the only choice. And so wine was something very, very important. And he's saying, if you have this old wineskin with a new patch, doesn't work. Doesn't work. And again, Jesus being the master teacher takes a familiar everyday life illustration and uses it to convey truth. What are you saying? What is he saying? He's saying, look, you're asking my disciples to practice ritualistic old patterns and shadows of religious duty when the new has arrived. And the new that has arrived is me. You see what he's doing? He's using the illustration of wineskins, but he's talking about himself. And he's saying, there's an old pattern, there are old habits, including fasting, but when those old habits and patterns come in conflict with the new, the old patterns must be done away with. Old habits die hard, but when they are confronted with the new, they must die. That's the point. Jesus says, Fasting was once appropriate at this time. Now it is not because the bridegroom has arrived. And because I've arrived, don't talk about fasting at this point. The shadow was there, fasting. The substance Christ is here, fasting is now no longer appropriate. The bridegroom has come. And then he gives a second illustration. Look at verse 22. 
and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. With the first illustration, he tells the disciples of John the Baptist that you can't add Christianity to your old forms of worship. If you do, a worse tear results. With a second illustration, he tells the Pharisees that if they try to put something totally new into something old, both are lost. And he's really indicting them. He's saying, listen, I who am coming to you are new. And as it is, you have to get rid of the old. Out with the old, in with the new. That's the point. No one can combine the ritualistic forms of Judaism and mesh it with Christianity. It doesn't work. Boy, isn't that a message for our day. Any kind of religion, any kind of supposed worship of God, any kind of ritualism, any kind of approach to a God who has specifically laid down that there's a time when the bridegroom will come, and when that day comes, out with the old, in with the new. Whatever I thought was my way to God must pass in my thinking. Old habits must be done away. Christ is here. And I must place my faith in Him. By the way, when he says new there, he uses the word kainos, which means new in quality. It's not Judaism of old. It's Christ in the new. Instead of old fastings that have no joy... They must be replaced with the new life of love and mercy and obedience. One of the commentators on this passage says it this way, Thus, it is not possible to confine to the structure of the old legalism the vitality of the new experience produced by faith in Christ. In other words, out with the old, in with the new. In the new, fresh wine of spirit-filled Christianity, were to be poured into the old, dry, rigid wineskins of legalistic Judaism, both Christianity and Judaism would perish. The Christian movement could not remain a sect of Judaism and survive. The freedom of the Spirit would burst the restraining bonds of legalistic Pharisaism, but there was danger that both would perish in the process. Jesus was clearly indicating that His gospel must find expression in a new movement. Jesus is coming along then and saying, it's not the Judaism of old, it's the Christ of the new. It's not all of your fasting and all of your rituals and all of your supposed spirituality. It is now Christ. It is me. I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. And you must worship me. Don't just fast for fasting's sake, he's saying. If I've come, the fasting is to be done away and the worship of the bridegroom has come. And he's not saying he's abolishing the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Here's the fulfillment standing right before them. And I think John the Baptist's disciples received the picture. The text doesn't readily tell us, but we know this. If they were really, truly following the one whom John the Baptist was pointing, they found him. They found him. As we close tonight, let me ask you some questions. There are myriads of people, and you may be a part of some of those in their thinking, who believe that by going to church, by 
doing the things that your parents did and their parents before them and their parents before them and all of the things that would be bound up in what they think is right and ready in order to receive that which God would have, you know, that may be the old and it may very well need to be placed, replaced by the new. Just going to church, just sitting in a pew Sunday after Sunday, maybe even involved in religious activities, maybe even reading your Bibles, maybe even praying, maybe even fasting with supplication may have actually caused you to be farther away from the new than ever before. If you haven't seen Christ in all of your religious endeavor, it means nothing. It merits you nothing. But if you are a person who is seeking the arrival of the one who can deliver you from your sins, the bridegroom is here. He's come. Now this is in our time, post-cross, an opportunity for fasting and prayers. But it's not the old. It's the new. It's a thankfulness that the shadow has dissipated and the substance have come. Christ himself has done his work already on the cross. See, they were looking at it pre-cross. We're looking at it post-cross. Christ has already come. He's already made atonement. And you need to get in on that. You need to be a person who responds not with the old, but with the new. Christ has come to give us a new and living way, the Bible says. And you and I are in desperate need of the new. We're in desperate need of seeing those old habits which die hard abolished in favor of a real and new and vital relationship with Christ. Now, there are some of you that no doubt are in that category. But there are some of you that say, no, I have already put away the habits and patterns of the past, even if it were from the religious way. I've come to Christ, I've placed my faith in Him. Let me ask you a question. Do you have joy in your heart at the coming of the bridegroom? Could you be like Jesus and His disciples at that moment? Can you imagine the rich and lovely festival of this wedding, Jesus being the bridegroom? Do you have joy at knowing that Christ is one day going to return? Are you having the joy and celebration of the wedding feast? Boy, I meet Christians often, at least those who profess, seem to have this long, drawn faith, and they don't seem to be experiencing the joy of the Lord. Did you know that if you're on your way to heaven, there is one day going to be a wedding feast called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb? And it's going to be the wedding of the bridegroom and the bride, and we are that bride. And we're going to be one day invited and confirmed with our ticket in hand that we can be a part of this glorious celebration. That, that just brings me great joy. Great joy at knowing that we have been asked by the bridegroom himself to be his bride. What a tremendous thing. Are you like John the Baptist's disciples still hanging on to the old? Or maybe even like the Pharisees' disciples or do you want the new? And maybe even lastly, are you assisting other believers in their desire to put off the old and put on the new? 
You know, there's so many people out there that we talk to. I'm sure you talk to them very frequently as I do. And they have all kinds of weird and unsubstantiated and bizarre thoughts about who God is, about who Christ is, about the Word of God, or even just their own opinions. And they have, some of them, even these grandiose thoughts about what Christianity is or what it means to be right with God. They are in desperate need of someone to teach them the truth. It could, it could even be well that you would, in your teaching of them, prepare them as God uses you to be also a part of this bride. Boy, what a challenge and what a great privilege to know that we can be those who are even bringing others along with us for that marriage supper of the Lamb. What a, what a thrill. Recently, we had our boys, Lancer and Logan, involved in baseball. And I said to them one day in the car when we were coming back from a game, I said, boys, why do we play baseball? Why did your mom and dad allow you to play in this league this year? And they gave various answers, none of them particularly the right one. And I said, boys, I want you to know that the reason why we're playing baseball at all is not for our physical conditioning. It's not so that you can have your your mental and physical life come in a place of maturation and you boys would be able to be able to have fun. It's not any of those things. We're playing baseball because we want you to have a relationship with little boys like you who don't know the Lord, who don't have a relationship with Him, who don't have families that go to church, who don't love the Lord as your parents do and as we're teaching you to do. And so what we're going to do at the end of the season is that we're going to have a little party over at our house and we're going to invite all these little boys and all of their siblings and all their parents and we're going to have them come over to our house because we don't want to play this game of baseball and then have that league end without our opportunity to share Christ with these people. And so, after the season was over, we had on two successive Saturdays an opportunity for swimming and, boy, I think we had like 50 one time and 40 the next and we had parents and I stood up at one point, and we had a, an, an excellent opportunity. The Murrays were a part of it, the Loonies, uh, several other of our families, the Kessners, and I just stood up and I said to these unsaved parents and all of these children that were there, we just want to extend our home to you. We want to show you the love of Christ. We want to be able to share with you that Christ makes a difference in our life and he is our Savior. And I said, even if I wasn't a preacher, I'd be telling you this. I didn't want any of them to think that somehow this is part of my job description. This is life for me. And so afterwards, we talked, and at the end of the time, I even went around and gave each one of them my card. And I said, now, if you have a spiritual need, I want you to call me, and I want to be able to try to keep in touch with you, and maybe we can play next year in this league, and maybe we can have an ongoing relationship together. And a few weeks later, I received a call from one of them. And she said, I'm a single mom, and you know my son, and I'm going through a very difficult time now, and I'm really in need of some financial assistance. They're about to cut off our lights. And I said, well, let's try to help you. And so we helped them, and then she called me back a couple of days later to thank me. And when she called, I said, ah, Lord, here's the opportunity. And so I said to her, Teresa, you know, it isn't enough for us just to want to be able to help you financially. We also want to be able to help you spiritually. And I know that your son needs to be involved in our Awana ministry. And you need to be involved in the life of our church. 
And you need to realize that it's not just that we exist to help somebody financially. And if we do, we want them to respond with the privilege and opportunity to attend our local church. Why don't you come? Why don't you come to our church? Why don't you be involved? I want to talk to you about your life with Christ. And so she said, I would like that. I need that and my son needs that. And so we're hoping that the Lord would have her involved with Awana. I told her about a care group and I called one of the care group leaders and I said, I want you to call this gal. She's in your area and I want you to get her hooked up on a Wednesday night fellowship opportunity. She works on the weekends. She's not able to be here on Sundays right now. But I said, this is an opportunity for this young gal who's in desperate need of direction to be out with the old and in with the new. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, you were such a wise teacher when you, when you were on earth. These disciples of John the Baptist, we have no reason to believe that they were anything other than innocent men asking a real question about their life and about who they should follow wondering in their minds about all of the ritual for which they had been brought up, and wondering earnestly about this fasting, and why you and your disciples were not involved. You gave them the perfect answer. The bridegroom has come. There's no fasting but feasting. Lord, I thank you that you give us the perfect answer to our question. I pray for those tonight who would need to respond with faith in Christ. They have been involved in the habits of the old life, maybe even the religious ones, maybe even going to church, maybe even doing religious activity, and maybe even reading their Bibles and praying, but don't know Christ. I pray that they would come to Christ even tonight talk with me or someone here about the old habits dying hard and the new life coming. Lord, I also pray for those in our midst who know that they know Christ, who have been a part of this church and have soaked up the fellowship and the teaching and yet have not been involved in encouraging others to come to Christ and to be a part of the marriage supper of the lamb to be a part of that wonderful wedding feast that celebration that will one day come when the bride is joined to her bridegroom to be in his presence your presence i pray that people would respond by looking at their sphere of influence and looking at people that they may have been friends with for years but have been too afraid to talk about christ I pray that they would do that, even this week. Lord, we thank you for this church and for its ministries. And I pray that every day we would learn more of what it means to be out with the old and in with the new. In your name we pray. Amen.